Well, if you've got a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 24. It's where we're going to be this morning as we kick off 2016 together. In Luke 24, uh, we find an interesting text at the end of Luke's gospel. Uh, where, uh, this is after Jesus' crucifixion, after his resurrection, but before his ascension, so before he leaves the earth to go and be with the Father. And he shows up on the road alongside of two of his disciples who don't recognize him, and he begins to have a conversation with them about all the things that had transpired there in Jerusalem in the days leading up to the, 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 the time in which he shows up to them alongside the road there as they travel to Emmaus, which is a little village outside of Jerusalem. And so on this road to Emmaus, Jesus uh, opens the eyes and minds of his followers to understand the reality, the truth, and the beauty of what the Bible's really about. And so as, as we enter into 2016, I, I wanted to look at this text together with you because I think that as we enter into 2016, what I'd like for us to see in, in, as a church in 2016 is the reality, the truth, and the beauty of what the Bible's really about. So we're going to have the text on the screen for you, uh, most of it anyway. I had added a little bit further down last, late last night and didn't get it inputted into the slides. But if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open there. Or if you've got an app on your phone, you can open that up and, and follow us all the way down to the end of where I'll stop reading. Okay, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, the text reads, That very day, two of them, his disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, all the things surrounding Jesus' arrest and betrayal and crucifixion. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in those days? In other words, are you the only guy who didn't see everything that just took place there in Jerusalem? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And they said, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to where they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. 
And they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, were marveling and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and, all, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now Luke really drills down on the really heart, meaning, and reality of all the scriptures when he records this story here for us. And listen, as we enter into 2016, there's lots of us who have made resolutions, right? And many of us who have broken them already. It's only, we're only three days in, and some of us, right, it's been wheels off, okay? Uh, so we've made some resolutions, maybe to eat in a more healthy fashion, or maybe to exercise more frequently. But some of you, as you move through 2015, one of the things that you recognized is not only maybe was your body being, you were consuming things that were unhealthy for your body, but you perhaps were just consuming things that were unhealthy for your soul as well. And so as you moved into 2016, maybe you made a resolution to read the Bible, some of you may have made a resolution moving into 2016 to read the Bible through in, in, in this year. Maybe from January 1 to December 31, maybe you made a resolution to open the pages of Scripture and consume Genesis to Revelation daily as you kind of ingest it and, and feed on it over the course of this next calendar year. And listen, maybe you've even found a reading plan. There's tons of great reading plans out there. Okay, there's reading plans from places. Uh, Table Talk Magazine has a reading plan, um, which is a, a, a devotional publication from Ligonier Ministries. has a great reading plan. I'm going to post some of these on our Facebook page uh, in a blog post, perhaps even over the course of this next week, and send you to them. So if you want to have a reading plan for 2016, you can find them easily there online. Table Talk Magazine has one. There are five-day reading plans, seven-day reading plans. There are chronological reading plans that will take the history books of the Old Testament and pair them with the prophetic books of the Old Testament so that you can see as history unfolds and those prophets were ministering what was going on in that season or that span of time so you're not just reading disconnected pieces of a bigger story. There are one-year plans to read the Bible through in one year. There are two-year plans to read the Bible through in two years. There's all kinds of reading plans. And listen, let me encourage you, if you set out to read the Bible through in one year, if you set out to read the Bible through in one year, it'll take you about 10 to 12 minutes a day. In reality, that's, that's encouraging for a busy person, isn't it? 10 to 12 minutes a day to read the Bible through in one year. Listen to this. There's about 775,000 words in the Bible. 
If you divide that by 365, because you got that, or 366 this year, because I believe it's a leap year in 2016. I get three, so my math is a little bit off here, okay? But if you divide it by an average year of 365, that's 2,123 words a day. And the average person reads 200 to 250 words per minute. So 2,123 words a day divided by 225 words a minute, if you fall kind of mid-range in that average reading scale, it equals 9.4 minutes a day. So even if you're on the upper end of the slower average, right, it's 10 to 12 minutes a day of reading will get you through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation in one calendar year in 365 days. And you got a little bit more time. You can miss a day this year because you got to leave. Get 366. There you go. Right? So if you set, the, set a plan to read the Bible through in one year, that's about what it'll take you on an average daily basis. So some of you may have a plan, and you have a plan that's great, but here's what I want to do this morning from this text in Luke's Gospel. Is what, I, what I want to do is I want to give you a lens through which to read the Bible in 2016. I want to give you a lens through which to look at all of the Scriptures in 2016. All right? Eric Mason, who's a pastor in Philadelphia, in his book called Unleashed, he's got a chapter in there in which he introduces the chapter by talking about his fond affection, deep love for pound cake. Right? I, mean, I had some pound cake earlier this week after my aunt's funeral down in South Louisiana. That, you know, after a funeral, what you do is you sit around and eat a whole lot of food, really good food usually. Um, but the church that she was, her and her husband were a part of brought a bunch of food over to their house, and so we sat and ate some really good gumbo. It was, it was good. Uh, and then there's pound cake for dessert. Um, and so they cut into the pound cake. And I'm just eating that pound cake. And the whole time I'm eating that pound cake, I'm thinking of the story that he tells. Because as he tells this story in the, in the introduction of one of the chapters of his book, he talks about his fond affection and deep love for pound cake and how he and his wife had been invited to dinner at a friend of theirs home who's part of the church there in Philadelphia that he pastors. So they go over to their home for, for, for dinner and for dessert, they're going to have pound cake. And so he just, he's all through dinner. He's just got this, this grin on his face, right? He just can't contain the joy that he finds and knowing that at the end of the good food comes the really good food, the pound cake, right? And so as he's waiting for the pound cake, right? He's, he's, he's just imagining how moist and, and delicious the pound cake's gonna be whenever it falls upon his palate and kind of tickles his tongue. And so he's waiting for the pound cake and they, they finish dinner and the, the, the host brings out the dessert, sets the pound cake on the table and begins to slice it and dispense it. And as they do, uh, he, he takes his fork and he slices into the pound cake and he, begins to, he puts it in his mouth. And as soon as he takes the first bite, he realizes it doesn't taste the same. You see, pound cake gets its name, right, from one of its key ingredients. And one of the key ingredients in pound cake is a pound of butter. That's why it's so good. It's got a pound of, a pound of butter in the cake. It's a pound cake. And so as he's tasting the pound cake, he realizes something doesn't taste the same. And so as, he's, as he takes a second bite, the host says, what do you think? And she could tell he's a little bit, like doesn't know what quite to make of it. And, she's, and he's like, it, it, it's good. And she says, yeah, I, I, I made it a little bit differently this time. And instead of a pound of butter, I put a pound of applesauce. <laughs> a pound of applesauce. He's like, it's not pound cake. It's, the, it's not the same. Right? Because when you take out that key ingredient, you take out that butter, right? you have something other than pound cake. you got a pound of applesauce cake. <laughs> right? So you take out that key ingredient and it doesn't taste the same. 
The texture may not be the same as, it put, as, you, as you feel it on your tongue. The taste isn't the same as it hits your palate. And listen, in 2016, as you read the Bible, no matter what plan you may have to get you from Genesis to Revelation in 365 days, or in, two, in a year or two years, a five-day plan, a chronological plan, seven-day plan, no matter what plan you have, what I want to do this morning is to put the butter back in the Bible for you, okay? I want to put the butter back in the Bible because if you read the pages of Scripture without seeing the person of whom the Scriptures were written, it's not going to taste the same for you. It just won't. You can read from Genesis to Revelation in 365 days at the end of the year, December 31st, close your Bible and go, praise Jesus, I did it. I made it all the way through. But if you're missing the butter, it's not going to taste the same. It won't. And in Luke chapter 24, in Luke 24, Luke records this portion of his narrative. And in the heart of this portion of his narrative, you got the butter that's at the center of the Bible. Because you can read its pages, but miss the person who it was written about. And I don't want you to do that this year. I want to give you a lens through which to read the Bible. So the first thing that we see in this text about that lens is this, is that Jesus is the central character and the lead actor in the main big storyline of the Bible. He's the central character and the lead actor. If you look in verses 25 to 27, here's what you're going to see. You see Jesus as he walks on the road with these disciples who had been with him, by the way, over the duration of his earthly ministry. He's walking alongside of them. And it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then you drop down to verses 44 and 45 and Jesus speaks of all the things written about him where? In the law, in the Psalms, and in the prophets. Now that was basically uh, vocabulary in Jesus' day to describe the entirety of the Old Testament. Whenever they spoke of the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they were talking about these three classifications of writings from Genesis to, to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the historical books as well. Uh, in addition, you had the writings, the, the wisdom literature like the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. Right? In addition to that, you had the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Malachi and Micah and Habakkuk and all these prophets, major and minor. And so whenever they refer to the law and the Psalms and the prophets, they're saying basically the entirety of the Old Testament. And Jesus earlier, we just saw, he says in the, in, in the law of beginning with Moses and all the prophets in all the scriptures. So basically what Jesus is saying is he stands there before them is he says, listen, I, I, I want to show you something that everything back here, everything written in the Old Testament, everything from Genesis to Malachi is ultimately pointing to you, pointing you to what you see standing before you right now. And that is myself. Everything back there, Jesus says, is pointing right here. All the promises, all the prophecies, all the precepts, all the predictions, they're all pointing us to fulfilled in and by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the lead actor, the central character in all the Bible. The central storyline of the scriptures is this, the person of Christ and his work who he is, and what he's accomplished. Now listen, in every novel that you may pick up off of the bookstore shelves or order on your Kindle, okay, 
or every screenplay that you may go, go to watch, whether it be on stage or on a screen, every screenplay and every novel, every story ultimately has lead, a lead character, a lead actor, actress, a central character, and then supporting cast, right? And every single one of the supporting cast, their particular role is cast in that screenplay or written into the pages of that novel in relationship to the lead actor or the central character. So whenever you read a novel or whenever you go to a movie, right, the central character, the lead actor, may not be the person who's introduced on page one of the book. And they may not be the person who is in the first scene on the screen, on stage, or on the movie. But they are the person to whom every other supporting actor or actress is related to. They're coming towards them or moving away from them in some capacity. And Jesus says in, in Luke's gospel at the end, he says, listen, I am the central character in all the Bible. The Bible is ultimately about me. I'm the lead actor on all the pages of Scripture. But see, our, 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 one of our problems is that our default lens by which we read the Bible is not this one. We don't read the Bible to see Jesus from Genesis to Malachi and from Genesis to Revelation. We all, typically, we read the Bible with one of two default lenses. The first one is this. One of our natural default lenses by which we read the Bible is as a manual for moral reformation, behavioral modification, or ritual instruction. So when we look at the Bible, ultimately, we're looking for what is it that we should do? Right? Where is it that we need to reform our morality and change the way that we're behaving? How can we modify our actions and kind of bend them to this externally and kind of squeeze them into this mold that's written in this book? Or how is it that this, this, this book that we have before us gives us instructions about re religious rituals that need to be performed and practiced? It's one of the natural default lenses by which we approach the Bible. We look for what is it in my life that needs to be reformed? What is it in my life that needs to be modified? How is it that I need to practice this particular brand of religion that the Bible promotes? We don't typically tend to read it as a story about Jesus, about what God has done in and through him to rescue, redeem, save, liberate, transform, and restore the image that he created us with. We don't read it that way. We read, what is it that I've got to do, not what is it that he has done? The second default lens that we tend to read the Bible through is, is a disconnected collection of stories about ancient people, places, and traditions that don't really have much to say to me today. Right? And there's lots of folks in, who, who are in a very academic setting who may open the Bible and they read it and they see all these stories about people who lived thousands of years ago and they see all this collection of traditions that arose out of those stories and they go, that's all great for those people who lived back then, but it really hasn't anything to say to me today. It's a little outdated. That's the other natural default lens by which we approach the Bible. But Jesus says, listen, the Bible is not about moral reformation. The Bible is not about behavior modification. The Bible is not even about ritual instruction. And it's not a disconnected collection of stories that have nothing to say to us today. But what the Bible is, is a big story in which Jesus is the central character and lead actor. Listen, in her, in, in her prologue to her, uh, her, her children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this as an introduction. Listen, if you don't have a, 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 a children's Bible for your kids, if you have young kids in your home, go out tomorrow and buy this Bible. And here's why. It's because it will begin to train your children as they read the scriptures for themselves 
what the central story of all the Bible is. In fact, I've, I've, I've really toyed with this idea of like buying it and giving it to all of our life groups and saying, you guys go through this together, right? Because this would open your eyes to see that the Bible's not about moral reformation. The Bible's not about behavior modification or ritual instruction. It's a story about who God is and what he's done. And at the very beginning in the prologue, this is what she writes. She says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes even on purpose. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They get afraid and run away. And at times, they're downright mean. Now, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and has come to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby, and every story whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. The Bible is most, first and foremost a story of God revealing himself, who he is, what he's done. And at the center of that, the central character, the lead actor in that narrative is the very son of God who will become flesh. And this is why, listen, this is why every week at Redeemer, week in and week out, some weeks I feel like maybe I do a better job of it than others, but every week when I open the Bible to pray and to plan and prepare and to study and to write, I'm not just looking for something to tell you to go and do. I'm looking to see where that particular text, wherever we are that weekend, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, whether it be epistles or Psalms, wisdom or, or history, how ultimately it ties and points and carries forward, points us back or points us forward to Jesus. I want to show you, I want to show him to you every week so that you don't walk away going, I've got to reform my morality. I've got to modify my behavior. I've got to practice these rituals a little bit better. So you walk away captivated by a person who's at the center of this story. So I love the title of Ryan's message last week so much. He said, it's always Christmas at Redeemer because every week, I want to take this book and I, I want to read it and I want to preach it in such a way that Jesus stands forth to captivate us because he's the central character. The second thing that we learn from this, though, is that even though Jesus is the central character, even though he's the lead actor in the, in the story, in the, all the Bible, in order for us to see that, God has to flip the switch for us. 
God has to flip the switch for us. Listen, in verse 31, we're told that whenever the disciples were gathered there in the room and they're sharing a meal together after they had gone on the, after, after their little trip, when they invite Jesus, he says, it looks like he's going to go further on, but they say, no, urge him. They urge him to stay. Share a meal with us. They don't recognize who he is. So he sits down at the table, and as he does, he breaks the bread. And when he breaks the bread, it says their eyes were opened. Now, it doesn't say they opened their eyes, and they'd had their eyes shut the whole time, just kind of walking around. I don't know who this dude is over here. It didn't say they opened their eyes, but their eyes were open. It's a passive verb. You know what that means? It means something happened, but they didn't make it happen. It happened to them. God opened their eyes to see. If you look further back in the text in verse 27, we're told that Jesus is the one who interpreted to them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In verse 32, after their eyes are opened, they talk about how their hearts were burning when he talked to them through the scriptures on the road to Emmaus. And then in verse 45, we're told that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So what you see is this. Listen, the the point is this, is that they didn't figure it out for themselves. They weren't good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people didn't like them enough for them to sit down and think long and hard enough about what it is that he was trying to say. Listen, the point is that, that they didn't figure it out for themselves. They had to have someone open their eyes to see it. And I thought about this late last night. I thought, you know, Here here are the people who had walked with Jesus and eaten with Jesus and listened to Jesus teach and seen Jesus perform miracles and heal people, seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the grave. They'd seen Jesus be betrayed. They'd seen Jesus be beaten and crucified. They'd seen Jesus be laid in the tomb. And yet when he walks among them as the resurrected Christ, opening their, and, and, and pointing them back to the law and the Psalms and the prophets. They couldn't figure it out for themselves. The ones who had been closest to him without someone opening their eyes to see it. And if they needed God to open their eyes to see it, don't you think we do as well? But how do you know if it's happened? How do you know if your eyes have been opened to see it? Let me give you a couple of benchmarks. The first two are ways that you might, you might, might see that you, your eyes haven't been opened to see this just yet. And the, the third one is a way that you might know that it has. How do you know if he slipped the switch? First, one of the ways you know this hasn't happened to you is that you read the Bible like a self-help manual that you can pick up at Barnes & Noble or on your electronic device. See, if the lights have yet to come on for you, you're reading the Bible to see what you should do and you're passing right by every single time what he has done. Those things aren't standing off the page to you. You're not looking for them. All you're reading the Bible for is little, kind of like life's little instruction manual. Just like every other dealing with disappointment or how to, how to wrestle in your finances in 2016. All those books on the self-help shelves at your local bookstore. And you're approaching the Bible very much the same way as if it's a self-help manual. And the lights have yet to come on for you. Listen, if they haven't come on for you and you don't see Jesus as the lead actor, the central character in all the Bible, then one of the things that will happen is that you will become offended by the fact that you need a Savior. 
Because if the Bible's a self-help manual and you don't see Jesus, that his rescue plan initiated from before the foundations of the world and culminated at the cross, if you don't see that as being the central narrative storyline in all the scriptures, it's just a self-help manual to kind of help you kind of get over the hump, give you some recommendations for how things might work a little bit better in your life, then you're, you're, you're going to be offended by the fact that you need someone to save you, someone to rescue you, someone to, 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 to transform and liberate you, that you're held in bondage or captivity. That's going to be offensive to you. Because you're going to think, well, all, all I really need is a little bit of advice. When in reality, what you need is news. You need news. See, one of the ways to know that you're, the, the lights have yet to come on for you is that you read the Bible like a self-help manual. Another way to know is that if you're reading the Bible through these kind of your natural default lenses is that you tend to feel superior to those who aren't practicing the moral reformation and the behavioral modification as sufficiently and succinctly as you are. Kind of pride begins to rear its head in your life. You begin to feel superior to everyone else or those principles and those precepts, either they make you prideful or they crush you and they press you down. Right? Because whenever you're doing really well to keep those things, right, you feel really good about yourself. You're kind of on cloud nine. You're kind of looking at everybody else around you going, man, they're not, as good, they're not doing this as good as I am. They're not doing this Christianity thing as good as I am. Or whenever you're not doing so well, you look around and you go, man, everyone's doing it better than I am. And I'm just crushed by the weight of all the teachings and the truths. See, if you're still just reading it as a self-help manual through your natural default lenses, either you'll feel superior to those that you feel like you're on a different plane than, or you'll feel inferior to those who you feel like are on a different plane than you. And this happens in churches, and this happens in individuals' lives. Listen, some churches, they become very legalistic, because when they open the Bible, all they're doing, the only thing they're preaching on are biblical principles and precepts about what you should do. Week in and week out, it's a steady diet of this is what you should go do. 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 And there's never any announcement or news about what has been done. And so, of course, you would feel superior. If that's the message that's enforced week in and week out, you would feel superior become very legalistic or others become very liberal and they just see Jesus as the example but not a substitutionary savior. Yeah, Jesus' example of love and peace and harmony and justice, all these things, this human spirit that we all should embody and embrace. And Jesus becomes the example, of the pinnacle example of all those things but he's not God in the flesh who's come to rescue. See, the principles will either crush you They will crush you if you're not uh, reading the Bible in the way that Jesus says the Bible should be read with him at the center. You'll be crushed by its principles and not captivated by them. The only way you'll be captivated by them is if you see that there was one who was crushed for you and someone announces that to you every single week. And when you read from Genesis to Revelation, you're looking for that. And you're seeing it all across the pages of Scripture. Now listen, one of the ways to know that maybe the lights have come on for you is that it will create, in contrast to feeling superior or inferior, is it will create a humility in your life and a hopefulness in your life. And here's what I mean by that. Listen, it will create a humility and a hope in your life that no amount of preaching on biblical principles of humility and hope can create by themselves. And here's why. 
Listen, if you realize that the only way to see the Bible this way is for God to flip the switch, to turn the lights on for you, if you see that, then it'll create a humility because you'll recognize you didn't figure it out for yourself and so you can't take credit for it. That God showed you that. God showed up and turned on the lights for you. So there's a humility. So you don't walk around judging everyone who just sees the Bible as a bunch of principles and doesn't see the person. But it also gives you great hope for those individuals as well because if you didn't turn the lights on for yourself, he did, then he can turn the lights on for anyone. So it means you don't give up on people. It means you continue to press into people with great hope and prayer. Like, my God, would you open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ? I didn't open my own. You opened them for me, and you can open theirs just as you opened mine. Jesus is the central character, the lead actor. And in order to see that, God's got to flip the switch. So how does all this work? What should we do about it? Let me close with some practical suggestions as you read the Bible in 2016. How does it work? So you open up Genesis and you begin to read in your Bible reading plan tomorrow because you hadn't done it yet because that, that resolution went out the window, okay? But you open it up tomorrow and you begin to read. How does this work? Let me give you six suggestions and they're gonna be quick. I promise. <laughs> Number one. Look for cross-references in your Bible from the Old Testament passages to New Testament passages to see how New Testament authors are interpreting Old Testament texts. Listen, some of you have Bibles that have cross-references and notes down on the bottom, and so you might be reading an Old Testament text, and you come across, and there's a little A out next to a word, or a B out next to or a C, and you look in the kind of column there, and there's all these cross-references, and it sends you over into the New Testament to show you where the new Peter or Paul or James is referencing back to this particular text and how they're interpreting it in the light of the coming of Christ. So as you read through the Bible, look, at, look up those cross-references. They're, 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 they're there for a reason. <laughs> Dig through them and trace them out. Like one real practical, this is one of, the, one of the most practical suggestions for interpreting Scripture is that you interpret Scripture with Scripture. Right? And so when you get to a hard-to-understand point, you, you kind of look through the cross-references, figure out if it's sending you somewhere. And you go to that place and you go, okay, what does this author have to say about this text and the way that he's using it here? So you look for those cross-references. One real practical way to think about this is, listen, whenever all of us are going to hit that point in the Bible reading plan where we're going to come across Leviticus, all right? And we're going to be like, oh, man, this is challenging. Listen, let me, let me encourage you to do something. When you hit Leviticus in your Old Testament portion of readings, no matter what your New Testament portion of reading says that day, open to the book of Hebrews and read it parallel to Leviticus, and here's why. Because the book of Hebrews is like a New Testament commentary on the book of Leviticus. Because in the book of Hebrews, what you're going to see is the author of Hebrews is going to say, all this stuff about priest and sacrifice back here in Leviticus ultimately comes to its fulfillment in Jesus. That Jesus is the priest who offers the sacrifice, but himself is the sacrifice that is offered. So when you open Leviticus, read Hebrews parallel with it, and it'll, all of a sudden it begins to open up for you. Oh, wow. I didn't know Leviticus would be that exciting. Because <laughs> it's ultimately pointing us to Jesus. So look up those cross-references. Second of all, look for the indicatives under the imperatives. 
When you read the New Testament epistles, what you're going to find is that Peter and Paul and James and John, they're going to almost inevitably start their their, their letters in this fashion. They're going to start by talking about what God has done in Christ to save. Then they're going to move to how we should respond to that. Paul does it almost like clockwork in his letters. He starts by saying, here's what God has done. Now this is what you should do. And so when you get to portions of scripture that begin to issue commands, imperatives, that's what an imperative is, it's a command, you look back to the indicative that lies underneath it as its foundation. And you go, why should I do this? Well, it's because this was done. So you read the imperatives in light of the indicatives. Third, look for themes in the stories that carry you forward to the person of Christ. Look for those themes. For instance, you open Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and you read the story of Noah and how things had gotten so bad upon the earth that God decides to judge the earth with a massive flood and destroy every living thing other than those who sought refuge in this boat. What you, what you begin to see is in that story as it unfolds, you see how Noah didn't, wasn't, it wasn't like most of the children's Bibles tell it, right? Noah wasn't this really good guy and everybody else was a really bad guy. <laughs> but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favor in the Hebrew Old Testament is, is, based, is roughly equivalent to our New Testament, the New Testament term for grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He wasn't the really good guy that God chose to then save from the impending judgment while he destroyed all the really bad guys, but he chose to have grace. He chose to have favor upon Noah and gives Noah instructions about building a boat because his impending judgment is coming and there's only one way to escape the judgment, to be on the boat. And you gotta get on the boat before the judgment comes because the door gets shut. Does that sound familiar at all to anyone? (laughs) See, there's themes in those stories that ultimately are pointing us in a trajectory, pointing us to a person, pointing us to what God would do in Christ. Fourth, look for prophecies that can only be fulfilled in or by Jesus. So you read Genesis chapter 3 and you see the fall of our first parents and you see God make a promise makes a promise that there will one day be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. Even though his heel would be bruised, he would crush his head. And in that promise, I can imagine Eve. She conceives and bears a child, Abel. She conceives and bears another child, Cain. Neither one of those were the seed. One of them killed the other. The other one went into exile. (laughs) They weren't the seed who crushed the head of the serpent. She bears another child, Seth. He wasn't the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. And so things get so bad and God destroys the world, saves one family. At the end of that flood story, you got Noah passed out drunk in a tent, naked with his sons doing some weird stuff. That's not the seed to crush the head of the serpent. Then you got God choosing Abraham. Right? He he comes to Ur the Chaldeans, brings Abraham out of that, sends him to a land. Abraham does a lot of crazy stuff, trading his wife to the Egyptians for safety. That's not the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. Where is the seed? Ultimately, it's pointing us forward to someone who would come. Look for those promises or prophecies that God would send a prophet like Moses 
to lead his people. Who is that? It's Jesus. Fifth, look for descriptions that can be true of no one other than Jesus. Look for descriptions that can be true of no one other than him. For instance, when you come across some of the wisdom literature in the Psalms, and you're going to read things like Psalm 24, 3 to 6, where it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then the text says, Selah, which means pause and think about that. In other words, who can come into God's presence? Who can ascend to where God is? Who can approach God? He who's got clean hands and a pure heart. Anybody signing up for that one? <laughs> Anybody qualify for that? There's one who did. There's one who did. And because he did, when you are in him, then the doors are flung open and you can approach without fear. And finally, sixth, look for the persons or figures that point beyond themselves. The persons or figures that point beyond themselves. In a conference message several years ago, I was listening to um, uh, by a gentleman named Tim Keller, who's a pastor of a church in New York City. Um, at the end of a message similar to this one, he goes off on what I thought was just an incredibly captivating and beautiful rendition of how Jesus, every story whispers his name, every person and figure points to him. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience was imputed to us. Adam had a test in the garden that he failed. Jesus had a test in the garden that he passed in Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but yours. And he trusted God when Adam failed to. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who, at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, a truly innocent sufferer, who intercedes for and then saves his stupid friends. 
Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we might be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. And then he ends with saying, the Bible's not really about you. It's about him. It's about him. He is the central character. He is the lead actor in every story points with a trajectory toward him. And that's the butter in the Bible. And as you read it in 2016, that is what will set your palate on fire. And I hope that you will. Let's pray together.